What this book offers is some self-compassion instead of tough love and the opportunity to love yourself to health and to go deeper to the root issue, which starts in childhood. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in as we talk with leaders. She is the author of It's Not Your Fault, The Subconscious Reasons We Self-Sabotage and How to Stop. Welcome, Laura Connell. Hi there. Thanks for having me. It's not your fault. I love that because I feel like so often people get caught up in feeling like everything's their fault. This book touches on so many categories, blind spots, attachment styles, dealing with toxic people, parenting yourself, forgiving, and cleaning out your closet. What inspired you to write this book? It's kind of a response to the books I had read on the topic of self-sabotage, because certainly this is not the first book on the topic, but I believe it is unique because the ones I've read in the past tend to have this underlying belief that it is your fault. So you just need to change your habits, maybe change your thoughts, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, stop effing yourself, they might say. And those strategies never really worked for me because this comes out of my own journey of healing self-sabotage and the behavior modification, as I call it, the being hard on yourself, the tough love, it wasn't working for me. It would work for a short time. And then I would just fall right back into the old patterns. And I think that's because I didn't have the internal shift or the transformation that I needed to actually stop for good and become a different person, really. And so what this book offers is some self-compassion for the reader instead of tough love and the opportunity to love yourself to health and to go deeper than habits and behaviors to the root issue, which I say starts in childhood. So my argument is that self-sabotage is actually a coping mechanism that we learned in childhood. It's an, a very odd way of protecting ourselves. It certainly doesn't look that way, but that is what it is. And I explain all of that in the book. I love how you explain that about self-sabotage, a way of protecting ourselves. Can you give us some examples of what self-sabotage is or what it might look like? Yeah, throughout the book, each chapter, after the introductory chapters, which kind of explains what it is, each chapter is devoted to a different type of self-sabotage. And some of them include things like having poor boundaries or what we might call people-pleasing. Another one is having a really harsh inner critic. Another one would be using coping mechanisms such as addictions. So for instance, I had a dependence on alcohol in my past, and that's how I coped with the pain in my life. These are just a few. There are love addictions. There are daydreaming that some people do. And this is not just regular daydreaming. This is fantasizing, fantasy thinking. So there are many different ways that we cope with the things that we went through in childhood. And um, that's how I deal with it in the book, kind of one chapter devoted to each form of self-sabotage that I've seen. It feels like this is really kind of 
straight talk, but it involves grace. It's sort of like uncovering that here's the things we do because you mentioned alcohol and it's almost like they'll start to figure out one thing. They'll get past that, but then another one raises its ugly head. Do you see that mm-hmm. often? Absolutely. And I saw that with myself, Lori, being someone who's also gone through recovery. It was interesting to get past the alcohol addiction and then find out, oh, there's a exercise addiction, like these body image issues. There's an exercise addiction. There's a sugar addiction. There's an addiction to men. And the alcohol was just kind of hiding those because it was the primary one. But you're so right. Being cross addicted is very common. And you take one away and it seems like another one just comes in to take its place. So again, we have to get to the root of these issues because they are all doing the same thing for us that is trying to keep us safe, but in a maladaptive way. When I hear you say how it wants to keep us safe, I love that description. Mm -hmm. We can look at self-sabotage as like this terrible thing, but its purpose is pure. But then when you look at what it does and how it keeps people from basically living their best life, Mm -hmm. how do we recognize it? Honestly, it's pretty easy to see that we're doing it because you think about you sort of look at what you're doing to yourself. In essence, it is the feeling that you're your own worst enemy. If you have this feeling like I'm not on my own side, I do things constantly that hold me back or that aren't good for me, whether that's health wise or in my career or just life in general, I just can't seem to stop hurting myself. And I can't seem to learn the lesson. Like I know the consequences for what I do are bad, but it doesn't stop me. And you just get to a point where you don't know how to do it any differently. Like you've read all the books that I described, you've done the therapy, maybe like you've tried all the habit changing and you've tried to talk yourself out of it. You've tried the positive mantras, like nothing's working. When you get to that point, it's almost like a bottom in addiction. You have to reach the bottom to figure out that, hey, like I have to do something different here. Maybe I need help. And that's a good sign. And when you say maybe I need help, what would be the first step? Understanding why we do it. And of course, my argument is that it it starts in childhood. It's rooted in dysfunctional family systems. It's rooted in unmet needs in childhood. In childhood, if you grow up without having your needs met by your primary caregivers, and sometimes it's even just your perception of what your needs are. So it doesn't mean it has to be a severely abusive or neglectful home, though it can be. But if you just have the feeling that your needs are not being met by the people who are supposed to meet them, that really throws you into this feeling as a child, like I have to take care of myself, but you're too young to do that. So you develop these coping mechanisms or coping strategies to try and keep yourself safe. And that's where, for instance, the people pleasing comes in. So your parents are maybe punishing you if you stand up for yourself. If you speak up or say the wrong thing, you might get in trouble. Or even just feeling like you're a burden to your parents. You have this sense that maybe they don't care that much. Then you're going to feel like, okay, well, how do I keep my parents happy? Because very important that I keep them happy because I'm dependent on them. I'm a child. I can't take care of myself. 
myself. And this is all going on subconsciously. Like the child is not consciously saying this to themselves, but it's something they know in their bodies and it's actually in the nervous system it ends up and so you say well i got to keep these people happy so this leads to you having a very external focus and what i call self-abandonment so instead of paying attention to your own needs even in your body like what you need in the moment you turn that attention toward your parents so you're constantly looking outward to them and so this becomes just part of you and then you grow up and other authority figures, or even just any other adults, you give them that power over you. You might even walk into a social situation and a healthy person from a healthy family goes into a social situation with excitement. Like I think about my daughter, she loves social things and it's, who am I going to meet? What's going to happen? It's going to be so much fun. But if you have this nervous system activation from your childhood, a social event can feel like walking through a field of landmines. It can feel like going to war almost because you're just defending yourself against what feel like threats to you. Other people are not something to be curious about or to get to know, or it's someone who might judge you and who might reject you. And that rejection feels almost like death to you because as a child, it really did feel like life or death when you had that potential to be abandoned because you couldn't take care of yourself. So all this is stored in the nervous system and the nervous system doesn't know time. It doesn't know that a party is not a war, you know, like it just knows that you feel activated in the same way as you did when you were a child. So that's why it can be difficult to talk yourself out of these things. You might've had the experience of trying to say to yourself, well, why do you feel like that? It's just a party. You just go in and relax, but you can't because it's in your body and your body is going to try and keep you safe regardless of what your head is telling it. This is so good because one of the things as a coach I recognize is often when people can't move forward, like you said, there's childhood things. And so maybe they are working with a company or they're trying to start a nonprofit and they're feeling stuck or they're feeling stalled out. They're reading all the books, they're doing all the things, but they're not working for them. So I love that you are bringing it up, that it's the way that we're reacting and we're being because we don't even know. And so seriously, we're acting like children. You hit the nail on the head because when you were just speaking now, I was thinking to myself, this is the inner child, the inner child who is running the show. It is an unhealed child inside yourself. So if you think about that type of childhood I described where needs aren't being met, a child's job should be to explore the world. It should be to be curious, to have fun, to discover what you're good at as you get older, you know, to be assigned like age appropriate responsibilities by your parents, to be praised and encouraged by your parents, to have the support of a family there so that the child is free to just be who they are in the world. So if you didn't feel like you had any of that, the child tries to be your caretaker, but it's not equipped because it's never learned how, for one thing, it's a child for another. Right. And so this is where you're coming from. You never learned how to say, regulate your emotion. So if emotional overwhelm or dysregulation sounds familiar to anyone, you might have been never taught how to deal with difficult emotions. So your inner child is struggling 
to cope with these things that it doesn't know how to cope with the best way it can. That's just one example. So you're right. And you think about even after we heal our inner child, the people we're dealing with have inner children who are not healed running that show as well. So we have our inner child and then we have other people's inner children that we have to deal with as well. So that's why sometimes life can feel a bit challenging at times, because if you didn't learn the coping skills you were supposed to at the age you were supposed to, that child is just desperately trying to keep you safe. And just like the nervous system, the inner child doesn't know time. It doesn't know that you're not that little kid anymore. It doesn't realize that rejection is not going to kill you because now you're an adult and you have access to resources and it doesn't think long-term. And that's why if you have plans for your life and you feel like they keep getting foiled by these short-term mistakes that you're making or the ways that you're sabotaging yourself, that's the inner child because it just wants to keep you safe right now. And that would be where say an addiction comes in. So if you feel like you can't stop drinking, that's the inner child trying to save you from your pain, you know, like whether it's escaping emotions or escaping the discomfort you feel in your own skin, the child is on your side, but it just doesn't have the coping skills to do it properly. There's so many things we've been hearing because kids today have better language. So we're hearing the things the anxiety, the triggers, but so they have the language, but they don't still recognize that this is what is causing it. One of the things I think that goes really strong with self-sabotage is that negative self-talk. Can you talk about that? Negative self-talk is often, it's also called the inner critic. And you know, it's that voice that it just can't seem to be nice to you. (laughs) And some say that it was developed as kind of an echo of what you heard growing up. So if you had caretakers who just didn't speak to you very nicely, you would internalize that and speak to yourself the same way. Again, it's because you don't know anything else. This is all you've heard, right? And there is a myth, the inner critic is motivating. So a lot of people are afraid to give it up. Because they fear that if they do that, they're going to get lazy, or they're going to drop the ball. But the truth is, the inner critic is demotivating and it creates a lot of shame. The thing to do instead is to be self-compassionate. And that's what I prescribe in the book is to be compassionate toward yourself. And that can be scary for people who have never done that and who fear that if they do do that, that that everything's going to fall apart for them. But what I like to say is, well, you've been being mean to yourself your whole life. And do you have what you want? Has it been working for you? (laughs) And Usually the answer is no. And that's why they come to me. Why don't we try something different? And the great thing about self-compassion, which is exactly what it sounds like, it is being nice to yourself, knowing that you're not alone. That's a big part of it and being mindful of your emotions. So with the inner critic, you're often beating yourself up, say, when you make a mistake. I'm sure people are very familiar with that. Whereas if a friend or a loved one came to you and they made a mistake, you wouldn't talk to them that way. So it's very odd that we treat ourselves pretty much the worst of anyone in our lives, even worse than strangers sometimes. 
when in reality, we should be treating ourselves the best because we're the most important person in our lives. But that voice is in us. It's been kind of encoded in us. So to me, the way to change that voice is not to try to talk yourself out of it because your subconscious calls BS on that. You know, it knows how you really feel. So just positive mantras don't do the trick, in my opinion. I think it's to counteract it with the self-compassion I was just talking about. And there's a psychologist named Kristen Neff, and she is actually the champion of self-compassion. She has researched it extensively. I would say it's her life's work. And she has some very solid evidence through studies that she's done that actually proves that self-compassion is much more effective than the opposite, which is that inner critic that we were talking about there. Finding a way to be nice to yourself, it starts with how you treat yourself. So if you start to treat yourself in ways that are more kind and more comforting, um, this changes the voice more naturally than, than trying to there's some things, some techniques that say catch your thoughts and change them. But again, I feel for some people, for many of us, that doesn't work long term. So I would start with treating yourself with kindness. And again, when we're not familiar with self-care, that can be incredibly difficult. It's like, well, how do I do that? Well, one thing you can do is just start paying attention to your emotions. So part of self-compassion is mindfulness. And that is simply accepting your feelings instead of running away from them. We often talk ourselves out of so-called negative feelings because we didn't learn how to navigate them. They're very scary to us. And the world actually tells us that they're not good. Like anger, for instance, we are often told not to be angry or get over it as quickly as possible. But what you start to realize when you do this work, which is paying attention to those emotions without judging them, is that they actually have information. They have things to tell you. So anger is often a sign that something in your life needs to change. So if you're feeling angry, that is like, okay, what's going on here? Like, what is not sitting right with me? But instead of going into that message, we freak out. We think, oh my God, I'm angry. I can't be angry. I got to stop this. And la la la, like Pollyanna, what can I think of that'll make me feel good? You know, instead of just spending a little time with that feeling and same goes for sadness. Sadness can be a time to really nurture yourself, to really go within and just take care of yourself, be kind to yourself, comfort yourself. There's an antidote to the inner critic. I always say the best way to get past whatever's holding you back is action. And so that's what I hear you saying is take some action, be kind to yourself and invest in yourself. Mm-hmm. I am definitely a big proponent of action. And I'm a fan of Tony Robbins, who says, take massive action. That's his thing. If you want to change your life, you got to take massive action. What I do caution about, though, is having a balance. First of all, taking the correct action, because often we're taking action in a way that's mean to ourselves. So it's that pushing, right? Like you think of even in business, that pushing, 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 which often doesn't get us the results we want because it's not coming from a good energetic place. So I love what you said about taking action. I'm a big proponent of that. And then balanced with also 
leaning back and receiving when it's time to receive, you know, so kind of like planting the seeds, I suppose, and then letting the harvest reap. I could see how that could even, like you say, be self-sabotage. If you're like, okay, I'm going to take massive action. I'm going to kick this out of the ballpark. And then you're almost going the opposite direction. In the book, you also talk about in the midst of healing and taking care of yourself, you're also having to deal with toxic people. Yeah. So one of the chapters in the book does deal with toxic people because when we grow up in a home, again, that's dysfunctional, we are used to being around toxic people and we're used to having to tolerate toxic behaviors. So that becomes our normal. That becomes what's familiar to us and putting up with um, abuse even at times becomes our normal. So this leads to, you know, toxic people in our lives to maybe a greater extent than someone from a healthy home. And in our lives, we're always going to have to deal with toxic people. Even when you don't choose them, you might find them at work. The workplace is a big, especially if you work in an office, you can think about that show, The Office, that had its <laughs> share of toxic people, right? So we will have to deal with them, um, but the fewer of them you have to deal with, the better. And when you start healing, you find that you don't tolerate the abuse as much anymore, right? So we have toxic people in our lives at work. We have them in our relationships and we have them in our families. And there are other places too, but those are the three that I tend to focus on in the book. And it's really interesting because in love relationships, that's a place I'm sure listeners know that that's a big place where both our toxic habits and other people's really shine. You know, they really have an opportunity to come out. And there's something um, about growing up with toxicity that draws you to toxic people in relationships. And like I said, that is the feeling of familiarity and it is the feeling of home. So sometimes even chemistry, when you meet someone, if you have strong chemistry, um, strong feeling of attraction, believe it or not, that can actually be a red flag because it could be activating something in you that reminds you of your father, maybe if you're a daughter of an absent father, for instance, or whatever applies for you. Um, but I can give an example from my own life in the past of being very attracted to emotionally distant or detached men. And it was, you know, after many years of this, and I even married one of those and had two kids with him. So like, this was a, a big thing for me in my life. And um, I started to realize that you know, kind of almost the less attention someone paid to me, the more interested I would be in them. And vice versa, if someone was nice to me, and they treated me like I was special, I would almost be repulsed. Like I would kind of just not feel any attraction, like it would be friend zone in that case, you know. And so getting to the bottom of that and seeing how directly it was related to my relationship with my father and to unpack that was very interesting to me. And to find out that chemistry that we all want so badly can actually be a sign that you, you might want to stop or at least be careful here 
was was very eye-opening, I have to say. We are just about out of time, but what is it you really want people to know? You are not your own worst enemy. If you are self-sabotaging, no matter how long you've been doing it, every part of you is on your side. It's just that it hasn't learned yet how to take care of you properly. So once you learn where all this comes from, it actually becomes quite easy to heal it because you've got to the subconscious level and the subconscious is where I think 99% of our behaviors and our outcomes stem from. So once you've got that understanding, I think it's fairly easy to change those habits and truly change your life, like become a different person instead of falling back into those old patterns, which you might be used to doing. I am so glad you wrote this book. It's not your fault. The subconscious reasons we self-sabotage and how to stop. The author is Laura Connell. Thank you so much for being on the show. How can we get this book? So you can pre-order the book at laurakconnell.com slash book. And when you purchase it, you can send me a screenshot of your purchase and I will send you a gift valued at $100. These are resources I've created for my clients that they pay for, but it's yours for free when you show me that you purchased the book. And it's a pre-order. The book is available September 12th. That's when it's on the shelves and when it will be mailed to you or you'll be able to access it digitally, however you buy it. For now, it's pre-order available September 12th. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference. 